This is the FutureX Podcast, Episode 15. In each episode of the show, we interview a platform designer, author, or publisher. They'll talk about how to build online communities that are diverse, welcoming, and safe. Now, here's your host, Lee Schneider. This is the FutureX Podcast. I'm Lee Schneider. Let me introduce our next guest the way he introduces himself. Born of Steel, Fire, and Black Wind. J.V. Hilliard was raised as a highlander in the foothills of a once great mountain chain on the confluence of the three mighty rivers that forged his realm's wealth and power for generations. His father, a peasant twerg, toiled away in industries of honest labor and instilled in him a work ethic that would shape his destiny. His mother, a local healer, cared for his elders and his warrior uncle, who helped raise him. JV, welcome to the show. That's the best introduction I've probably ever read. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a funny story behind it. I was asked one time to come on a podcast with a gentleman who said, I get a lot of people asking to be on my podcast, so submit something that is creative. And little did he know, I'm a a fantasy adventure author. So what I did was I sort of just cast myself into my own role as a chronicler of my realm of Warminster, and I wrote my bio, not knowing I was doing it for a permanent uh, purposes. I wrote it just to see if I can get on his podcast. He turned me down because he didn't think I was serious. <laughs> and, and I said to him, I was like, you asked for this, you know, but honestly, I use it a lot. And I get I get people say that to me a lot that they like it because it's unique. It's not that. And if you decode that, you can find out that born of steel, fire and black wind means I'm from Pittsburgh and three mighty rivers. And you keep reading through yeah. it and it's pretty good stuff. So I, I, I try to, you know, it's if you had a decoder ring of, of J.V. Hilliard, you would know who I was and where I was. Right. It's the three confluence of the three rivers. That's what uh, tipped me. I realized, you know, this has an analog in, real, in the real world. So. Exactly right. That's so fun with it, right? <laughs> yeah, it's good. So you mentioned Warminster. Tell us about the Warminster saga, what it is, where it is, and what readers can expect. Yeah, sure. So if you're a fan of either epic fantasy or sword and sorcery or even some dark fantasy, you know, it, it's probably the series for you. It's it's It has a lot of Lord of the Rings kind of baked into it, Game of Thrones. If you're ever a, if you've ever played Dungeons and Dragons or, or you like Sword of Shannara, this is a series for you, um, and it's based in the realm of Warminster. So, as you can imagine, I'm not allowed to use Middle Earth or the Westeros. So, Warminster is my realm uh, that I've created, and I'm a longtime, you know, role player. You know, I played Dungeons and Dragons and very various games mm-hmm. like that over the last 20 years. And you know, during that period, many of those campaigns, we had unique creatures, and we we created unique worlds and and even our characters have sort of gone off the rails and done some fun things you know so i've baked into my realm much of that which i've built over the years of playing the game so if you're a video gamer if you're an rpg or if you're a cosplayer if you like that kind of stuff you're going to like warminster and warminster is is exactly that it's epic fantasy meets dark fantasy and they come together to create a four book series uh and and those books uh can be found uh, as you mentioned, pretty much ubiquitously online. If you like downloading audiobooks and listening to them, or if you like an ebook, you got a, you've got your reader. Or if you like the, like you said, analog, you got the whole book that you're sitting down by the fireplace or in bed reading. You can find it at every place from my publisher at Dragon Moon Press all the way down to Amazon, mm. Audible, and points between at your local Barnes and Noble. Uh, you know things like that. So, uh, but the but the novels start out. Um, you know, in a very epic fantasy kind of way with the introduction of both 
the uh, the 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 good guys and the bad guys. You follow a multi point of view, you know, third person adventure that that includes three three good guys versus one arch enemy. Um, you know, and there's a little bit of hero's journey in there. You get a lot of uh, forbidden love and some tropes that you find with uh, what I would describe as sort of like the chosen one versus the false prophet. And so Damus Alaric, who's my main, main character versus Great Taurus the Mad, who's the evil villain, you know, come together and duke it out over the four book series. Well, that's a great introduction for people. And I know that everyone always wants me to ask, where do your ideas come from? But I'm not going to ask that question because the answer is always either who knows or <laughs> from, you know, the, the ether, ether yeah, right. <laughs> or something, which is a good answer. But I'd like to ask about world building, because what are the rules for the war for this world that you've built over the books? Yeah. So the rules are there are no rules, right? Like anytime you make up a sci-fi or fantasy novel. Uh, you can you can suspend as much disbelief as you want. You've got to base something in reality, right? And so you'll find things like gravity and a sun and a moon and or things. But you know, it doesn't have to be the same everywhere you go. And in my world, uh, a lot of it is based in what I would describe as sort of a traditional fantasy realm where things are primarily medieval to renaissance. Uh, but I've tried to bake into it various parts of our world to make it look familiar. So you'll find some... Scandinavian mythos, you'll find some Native American mythos, you'll find some Asian mythos all wrapped into one to create this realm. And, and part of that is keeping not just in your head what's going on, but also keeping track of these societies that come together to do that. So I've created a map. I've created what I would describe as sort of like a, 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 a noble family tree so that you can take a look at the families because you might lose track of them. Hey, it's a it's an epic fantasy. And Book one, there's a lot of new names flying at you. And until you get used to hearing them, this is a way for you to keep track of them. I've even gone through and, you know, and, and started to uh, put together for my the third novel, which is being released this month. Um, you know, I even have what I would describe as sort of a flow chart uh, for the Cathedral of the Watchful Eye, where both the bad guy and the good guy come from. So you get a sense of the types of positions that are all within this sort of, you know, this this worldwide church of the uh, protector, the divine protector of Arud. And, and so you get a lot of that. And I think that helps people follow along, but it also immerses you in something that that's fantastical, right? It's something that doesn't exist, but it's based in some of those realities and it allows people to, to kind of pull you through. So you, whether you're Lord of the Rings and you see a sword and a shield and an elf or you're Westeros and you see a sword and a shield and Jon Snow, you're going to find a lot of the same stuff in mine. With a little bit of a twist, I, I like to put the gothic in my stuff. I like to have my version of what I would describe as the Q, uh, using a James Bond term. There's a city of inventors that creates the next generation technology. And, you know, and some of that stuff gets used by the good guys and the bad guys in very important times during the series and things like that. So I, I, it has to be unique. And, you know, the way that I've done it is I've, I've borrowed from the best you know, and there are things out there that anybody can use, like an elf, you know, and stuff like that. And I've put my own twist on them, but you'll see that all of my monsters are unique. You'll see most of my characters are, are pretty unique, uh, and, and I hope folks like that. Well, you said the rules are, there are no rules, but I bet there's consistency. Right. There, You can't pull out a sword and then it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. 
Right. I imagine. I also heard you talk about a flow chart. Do you find that the uh, visualization of things helps you? It sure does. You know, I am, there are two types of writers. You know, there is the pantser, the Stephen King style, which they write by the seat of their pants. And whatever they're right, it's just flow. They can sit down and, and write and they just, it comes out. I'm the absolute opposite of that. I am a plotter or a planner. And for me, you know, I reverse engineer my stories. I write the end and then I go back to the beginning and then I fill in the middle. Uh, and that's a little bit different than, than folks might be used to. And maybe that's my left-handedness in me or whatever. I don't know. Uh, but that's the way I, I see things. And therefore, I don't miss putting things in a very... You know, when you're writing epic fantasy, there's a lot of details, and some of which are just there to character build or world build, and they're just there to make it unique. And it doesn't necessarily mean something super epic has to come from it. It just has to be something that makes you feel like, oh, he's thought about that detail. Like he has a different name for a copper coin. He doesn't call it just gold or you know a credit. If you're writing, you know, sci-fi fantasy, it's you know he's 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 thought through these things through, and they're called laurels and palmettes and. Yeah, and things like that. And, and so all those details go into it. And without that flow chart, you know, without that big board that I call it in my, in my, my den, I would, I, I'd get lost. And, I, and that way I keep everything regimented and I'm not, I even do that when I go back and edit to make sure that if I use a word coin or I use a word gold or if I, I use something that's just too generic, I try to go in and put my own little spin on it. That's cool. Yeah. It's really about a trust factor with the reader, right? There's a point where the reader has to kind of relax and go, okay, this author has got me. This is going to be okay. Sure, they're coming up with all these crazy names for things. And sure, maybe even physics don't work the same way. But it's at least I can trust it. And I think that's what makes people turn the pages, but it also makes them pick up the next book in the series. Yeah, yeah. I think you just hit the nail on the head. I mean, there's got to be enough reality that they can suspend the rest of the disbelief that they have to kind of follow along, right? So you, yeah. you have a situation where folks are already throwing themselves into a fantasy world. So they're ready to do that. They're ready to release, you know, these mortal coils that we have in our world to enter into the realm of Warminster or... Westeros or wherever they Shannara, wherever they want to go, you know, they can do that. Uh, and so they're, they're, they're prepared to do that. And my kind of reader wants to do that. So all I'm doing is just baiting them in and biting, you know, here, here's a little bit, here's a, here's some bait. Here's a little bit of tidbit here, something that you'll like. And then oftentimes I've got to be honest, I hear a lot about that at conventions and book signings and people that like it or people that want more of it, or people, you know, tell you, you know, how they appreciate the effort of detail that you put into something as part of that, even though they, you know, sometimes they might have to go back and look and see what it means. They're willing to do, they'll, they'll go to a glossary somewhere, you know, and, and check it out. So I'm doing that too. Yeah. You talked about feedback. So what kind of response has the series gotten in the fantasy community? Well, you know, it's more than I expected. Uh, at first, you know, I wrote this thing and I'm, I am out there and I see it of other books to many respects, but, um, what it really comes down to is is people that have read it have had an overwhelmingly positive uh, response uh, to the point where I've optioned the intellectual property of the novel to a um, a virtual reality ultra, uh, augmented reality company that's going to be making a video game out of it in 24 and 25, and I'm in the process now of of transitioning this uh, into a graphic novel. A lot of the feedback that I've got is 
you know, your descriptions are really rich and, and I want to, I want to see this, not just read it. Uh, and even though it's years from anybody even remotely considering it for a big screen, um, you know, I think a graphic novel or a video game will help that, that, that effort. And so I've, I've gotten some really good positive feedback on it. A lot of, uh, of folks that are gamers or RPGers uh, like it because when they cast themselves into the battles, they can feel the game around them. You know, and, and that it's not lit RPG in the way that, um, you know, some, you know, uh, authors and novelists do. This is, you know, really, I think, you know, the, the battle scenes harken back to, you know, gamers. You know, they'll really kind of get it from the, 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 those, that single shooter point of view. Uh, but I also think that, um, you know, that, you know, folks like it because it's different. Like, I haven't, I haven't done the same tropes everywhere. Sure, there's spell casting and stuff like that, but I've created my own pantheon of gods and... You know, and I, you know, the feedback that you get is humbling, right? A lot of times people will tell you not only what they like, but what they don't like. Uh, and sometimes it's funny. There's a comic relief to it where folks come up and say, please don't kill this character. You know, I like this character. And meanwhile, you already know they're dead. You know, they just haven't read that far. You know, and you're like, oh, well, you might come back to me at the next convention and let me have it a little bit. But, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, when someone comes to you that you don't know and they, they hand you a, you know, a piece of fan art that they've done you know i try to put that stuff up on my website and use it to show social media and thank people uh for that and you know i even had one guy at my last convention in richmond come up and he made a baseball card out of me he has a collection of baseball cards that he has of his favorite authors and he gets them to sign at conventions they go to and he brought i didn't even know what he was doing he was handing me this card and i was like i just thought it was cool i was like oh that's a really neat idea and he liked my stuff so much that i autographed it for him and stamped it with my logo on the back and that kind of stuff really is, like I said, it's humbling. It, it, it's what you hoped would happen when you wrote, you know, and it's, it entertains people. So, you know, I, you know, I, I'm always open to constructive criticism, whether I read them in people's reviews that they leave for me online or they're courageous enough to come up to me to tell me <laughs> to my face, good, bad or ugly. Uh, and I and I try to, uh, you know, I, I try to res respect that and, and, and learn from that constructive criticism from time to time. I'm curious about extending your work into graphics novels and video games. Not only how that works, but how it got started. Did you wake up one morning and say, I need more merch, I need more IP? Or was it they approached you? Or How does that begin? Yeah, so it began exactly that way. It was I got approached, there was a, the CEO of the company read my stuff, and he was a fan, and said, would you consider being one of our first games in the door? And, you know, I didn't know anything about it. And the process started from there. We got together. We talked about it. We sat down with my IP attorney and hacked out a, you know, a revenue model that worked for both sides. And then I started into it. Now, I'm not a technologist by any stretch. So my, my input is limited except for setting the confines of what the realm really is within the game and giving him details on character backgrounds that he's used to promote the game as they're getting early adopters and play testers for it and things like that and you know i'm basically a storyboarder you know it's like i'm there to tell them this is how this would go and you know help them and, and their team for their to their credit has read through it they get it they ask questions they never do anything without my approval and it's just been a lot of fun on the graphic novel side it came from one of the discord groups that the video game company had set up uh they there was a gentleman who was working on graphics for them that says, I also do graphics for graphic novels, you know, and he started showing me some of the fan art that he was just drawing because he was trying to design the graphics for 
the the game and he's like what do you think of these and then that became the concept of going out and finding a publisher who would publish a graphic novel and they're interested in doing that if you have enough of a fan base you know and so one came to me the other i went to find them because i think for any artist you want to be in as many media as you can and and the medium of books or ebooks or graphic novels or video games or movies or whatever that helps get your product out there and I look at, because I'm a very entrepreneurial person, I look at this as I am my brand and my books are my product. And now I've got additional product to sell, as you mentioned, more, more merch. In this case, here's a video game, you know, or here's a, uh, a graphic novel for an adaptation for those adults like this guy right here that still read comic books. We don't call them comic books anymore. We call them graphic <laughs> novels, as in the call. But um, still the same thing, right? <laughs> right. It's interesting to me that you're not seeing it as a dilution or you're not being a purist about it. It's okay to extend and build out and have more folks in some ways inviting more points of view, inviting more creative people in to the vision. Well, two minds are better than one, right? And 20 minds are better than two. Um, you always have to be the captain of the ship if it's your intellectual property. Uh, but I also know what I don't know. And I could never create a video game for myself, and that's an additional revenue stream. And potentially, folks that'll play the video game might want to buy the books, or folks that are reading the comic slash graphic novel might also want to buy the books or play the video game. And so it's just another way of, of you know, getting the story into as many hands as possible. And in some cases, what I've learned in the graphic novel stuff is that you know, I can take two pages explaining something that's going on in a graphic novel. You've got one square of three or four squares on a page, and it's got to say exactly that. So they're taking my verbose nature and, you know, and they're putting it bam, on, on one square. And that's tough. You know, um, the video game stuff in my head, I see things. And on the screen, you see something and you're like, that's not it. But that's good enough. Right. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be something that's, you know, that you can explain or make sense. And like you said, it's like you're inviting other people in to help you. And I don't look at it as, as change or threaten in any way. I look at it as more helping it get into another medium so other people can enjoy it that might not pick up a you know, 500 page novel, but they'll jump on their phone and, and open up a, an app and go to the video game. You know, that's good enough for me. It's interesting that People are going to come at this from different directions. Like you said, not everybody is a 500-page novel reader, but it's kind of cool that they could experience it in a different format. And maybe they will read the novel or maybe they won't. Is it okay with you that, aside from the money and the fun and the notoriety, is it okay with you that they might just consume some other type of media and never come to the books? Yeah, I'm okay with mm -hmm. that. You know, it's, it's a good story, right? And it's... And I'm not like you, you used the term purist before. I think that's a really good term because what I found out in helping to build a video game and what I'm finding out in helping to put together this graphic novel is that it, it's never going to be the same. Like there's things that they can do within the confines of a video game that I'm never going to be able to do in the confines of a novel and vice versa. Right. So it's you know, I don't look at it as a dilution as much as I look at it as a building. You know, this is another way that you can experience the realm of Warminster. Um, and I think that's just as good. The story is still there. The basics of it. You might not get, you know, my, you know, Hawthornian description of 
some of the characters or, or you may not be as immersed in it as you were reading it. But, you know, like I'll give you a perfect example. My wife doesn't read. She listens to audiobooks. You know, her life doesn't allow her with kids and, and work and, and travel and all the kind of stuff that happens. You know, that's the way she consumes my books. And if I didn't have an audiobook for her, she wouldn't even know what was happening. And my uh, my voice actor is well known in the in the fantasy realm. He, he's done plenty of books for that and has a sort of his own gravity to it. And when I read my book, I've, I hear his voice now. You know what I mean? And so the, these things converge. And I think that's that's all good. And, and it's OK for people to you know like different characters or like different forms of it. I just want to make it available as much as I can. Now, in our briefing, you told me that the series is ending in December 2023. How how does all this fit into it, and what's happening next? Yeah, sure. So, you know, book three comes out this month, uh, and the last book, The Echoes of Ghostwood, will come out right before the holidays of this year, 2023. Uh, beyond that, there's a couple of things that are in play. I've got a couple of shorter novellas that I'm working on currently that I've kind of taken inspiration from those I've met along my you know, my book signings um, where they tell me what characters they like and what they want to learn more about. And so these novellas are going to buy me time between this and the next series um, to introduce the origin stories of some of the more popular characters. Right. So this they're not going to be 500 page stories. They might be 180 page stories or, you know, something like that, where they're small stories that give sort of like a peek behind the curtain to character that is popular and people might want to buy that book. Right. And, you know, it's something that will be easily digestible. It's stuff that I'll have done and in, in sort of like the hopper so that the minute this goes in the new year, I'll be launching a couple of those. And that'll buy me time to get through what I need to get through to get to the next series of what I think is going to be three books. It might again be four or five. We don't know at this point, but I've got the I've got the crux of the story. Like I know how it continues, but we'll see what that looks like when I get there. But for now, this is a way of keeping elements of the story fresh, keeping readers engaged, looking for the next thing that's available, something that I can get out that's easily digestible and will get people talking, which will also allude to the conclusions that are going to happen in the next series that they didn't get uh, from from this series, which I, I think that's that's important. Then they'll know the background story um, and be able to take that into what they're going to be reading and understand that better. Uh, and I think that that encourages is that, that cross-pollinization product. Well, that's an ingenious idea. And it makes me also curious about building an online community, connecting with people online. Is it a gaping maw to be filled and therefore terrifying? Or is it just something that you do? What's your emotional response to being present online do you do you feel you always have to be there or there can be gaps or where does it land with you yeah you know that's that's the the answer to your question is both yes and no it is a gaping maw this is giant hideous black hole that could never be filled but if you're not there you're abs you're, you're conspicuous in your absence right you know in order to be successful in our business especially those that are not with the top you know, the big four, big five publishing houses. And that's everybody except for just a select few. Um, we all have to, we're competing for that same real estate, right? And so whether you're an indie author who's just throwing your product out into the, the sea of Amazon, or you're someone like me that's working with a small niche publisher 
Uh, I mentioned the name Dragon Moon Press before. If you can't tell what she publishes by the name, uh, then you're, you're not paying attention. But that kind of stuff, it allows me to not just build those communities. It allows me to build a newsletter list. It allows me to stay in touch with my readers. It allows them to tell me what they like and what they don't like, what they want to see more of. And that informs me when I'm writing the next novels. And I'm not arrogant enough to to not want to give them what they want to see, right? So, like, even though I might want to know this end of the story is the way that I see it, when 20 other people are telling me, no, 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 we want to see the end, then you don't have what happened at the end of Game of Thrones on HBO, where everybody was cheering for <laughs> Daenerys, and I'm not going to spoil it, but it didn't work out like most of us wanted it to work out, and then you leave with a sour taste in your mouth. You know, this is entertainment. I want people to walk away being entertained, and if it's okay if they have a good ending, or it's okay if... if not everything happened that they wanted to have happen, but I'm, I'm at least they, they know that they can get a hold of me. So whether it's DMing me or, you know, uh, you know, finding me on my Discord channel or, uh, you know, just you know, sending me notes through my website, whatever, I want to be present so that when people do reach out, I'm listening to them. They feel like they had a chance to connect with me. I'm not just some, you know, crazy artist that's living in his basement and comes out just to feed himself once a week. You know, like, that's not what I'm doing. Like, I'm, I'm here. Talk to me. What do you want to see? And I'll see what I can do to make it happen. Uh, and I think that, you know, you know, not everybody thinks that way. And I, and I get that. I'm not saying my way is right. But the tools that social media brings us are free, save for the time value of money that we, you know, like me putting in time. Sure, there's value in that. I get that. But I'm getting the value back out. People know who I am. They follow me. They like my stuff. They buy my stuff. They contact me. And that's what you want. And I can't, if I were at one of the larger publishing houses, I might not need it as much. And frankly, that would probably be taken out of my hands and put in the hands of professionals to do, um, you know, and, and let them kind of, kind of run with it because they know what they're doing. I'm not that, you know, I might never be that. So for me to be successful in this, this mid marketplace, I've got to use every tool that's at my, uh, disposal and to do that um you know i use social media among other things like going to book signings libraries conventions speeches book clubs you name it just i i hit it all uh, you just can't be shy with that kind of stuff what's your favorite part of being an author uh you know my favorite part is when someone comes up to you and tells you what they like about the book you know as as stupid as it sounds if you would have asked me that two years ago i would have said finishing the first novel now it's like this is what i do it's it's no longer this was, you know, this thing I kicked off my bucket list. Now I'm living it. And when you get someone coming up to you, asking you, like, like I, I was at the GalaxyCon in Richmond a couple of months ago, and just being able to be part of the, the classes that they had for first-time authors and or a judge for their creatives and things like that, you feel like you're part of a community that cares. These people spend their time to come and see you in some cases, their money to come and see you and then want to tell you what they thought about your stuff. And it, that's, it, it's as strange as that humility is for you. Like when you, you find out that people really like it and they're waiting for the, like, when's the next one coming out? I can't believe you did that. Tell me how, I can't, you got to tell me how this ends or, you know, that kind of stuff. Or they're, they want to vote on, you know, colors for coats of arms and stuff. It's just, it's just really cool. That is that part is my favorite part because then it, that energizes me and it's like, I want to write more. I got to get out there more. More people want this. I have to do this for them so that they can continue on in the story. And so that I think that's the most rewarding part. And the part I like the most is that contact with readers. That sounds great. Very rewarding. 
So what's your least favorite part? Editing. <laughs> and, I, and I'm going to tell you right now, if any author is being truthful with you, that is the worst part of this job. And, and part of it is it slows the pace, right? There's a when You get into a groove, at least I get into a groove when I'm writing. You know, you're just hoping that the thing you hand to your editors is almost done. You know, like when they're going to send back and they're going to send back this really good. And it's never that way. You know, like my first drafts have 1,100 mistakes in them, and that's no exaggeration. You know, and you go back and you have to, you know, fine tune and hone and make perfect. Uh, and you, there are things in there that you miss because you're too close to it, or it's happened in your head, but hasn't happened in the novel yet. And you're like, oh, there's an entire gap of a chapter I've got to write or rewrite. And, you know, authors call it killing their darlings. You know, there are things that you have to cut that hit, hit the, you know, hit the film room floor that you love that will never see the light of day. And you have to listen to your editors. You have to listen to your beta readers. You've got to listen to your publishers. They're telling you what you like. It's almost like you're, you get into a sneak preview of a movie and they're showing you one of three endings and you're telling them which one you like the most, right? That's the thing that's going on there. Your beta readers get your books and they're like, I don't understand this or what does this mean? And you know, I, you, there's something missing here. When you hear that enough, you're like, all right, and it's just tough because then you got to go back and cut stuff and add stuff and reread. And it's just it's the process of it is just demoralizing because you realize how how great you think it was when you hand it to somebody. And then by the time they hand it back, you're like, what? Like there, I had that many errors. And most of the time they're right. <laughs> what I find so often is what you call continuity in a movie. I'll have someone put a glass of water on the table and then realize in the chapter before I had them sell the table and there is no table <laughs> or, or, you know, I can't remember what color I said, their eyes were green, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, all those kind of things. And that's where, uh, charts and graphs and notes and things like that, just to keep the continuity going is hard. Uh, how do you find beta readers? I think beta readers are in to most, to the most part, well-intended. They try to, uh, help as much as they can. Uh, and in many instances, I'm a beta reader back for them. And that way it's authors helping other authors. Uh, and they know the space. And what I mean by that is if I handed my book to my mother, she's going to say it's the greatest thing she's ever read, right? That's not what I need. I need someone that understands fantasy adventure, sword and sorcery, epic fantasy, dark fantasy. And they don't understand the nuance, the differences, so that they can say, I don't get this. Um, or this is missing, or I'd like to see this, or we enjoy that. And then you know what more to put in. Uh, and I think that that helps, or frankly, what more to take out. Um, you know, and I, I think that they're extraordinarily helpful. Um, and, you know, I, I would not want to launch a new book without it going out to a handful of trusted people that understand the marketplace that are going to say, wow, this really fits into something, or it's not anachronistic like you're writing a book for the 80s right like we don't want that this has got to be something that's contemporary and, and so you you know and you'll find that you you may I, I could name a couple of places where that's happened to me where you're just like oh yeah that's right or you reference something that's a real life event that you can't reference because it didn't happen in your fantasy world <laughs> you know <laughs> you catch that you know and you're like aha you know and maybe an editor might pass that over uh because they're not used to editing or they edit multiple genre where that beta reader is going to say, this doesn't make sense because this doesn't exist in this world, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, do you reach out to these people? How do you locate them? 
Yeah, in most instances, I've found them on social media. That tool I talked about cool. before, right? You know, you got folks out there, they'll, they'll reach out and say, I'm looking for beta readers, or I'm willing to be a beta reader, or my publisher has had a host of beta readers that, have, that like the idea that they are getting an advanced reader copy, and they, they're, they're influencing the outcome of a final product uh, as part of that. There's people out there just like to read, and they're good at it, and they know what good stories yeah. are. Uh, and so you find them there. Um, and, uh, you know, for me too, I had a sort of a built-in group of the perfect kind of beta readers for me. I ended up taking a, like a, a class at a community college about how to write my first novel and no one in my class wrote fantasy. And, you know, they were like memoirs and romance authors and horror novelists and things like that. And I was the only one. And so whenever they were reading it on a weekly basis, my updates, and they were grading me on it, um, there were things in there that they caught that, you know, fantasy readers might not have caught, you know? So by way of example, I use the term, which is familiar. And, you know, for me in a fantasy world, everybody knows that's a black cat or a bat or some rat that they can see through things like that. No one in the class knew what a witch is familiar was. If I would have given it only to people that had read fantasy, they would have glazed right over it. So I had to stop and it allowed me to go back and just add one sentence to explain what that creature was in that terminology meant for those that might be reading their first fantasy novel. And it's that kind of stuff that I think is important too. So even though I think the folks that are in your genre make the best beta readers, I share it with other people that, you know, let's face it, iron sharpens iron, right? You know, and you got to, you know, other authors that are out there hustling and I'm doing the same thing to their stuff where I don't understand why they say things in their romance novels and they laugh at me because it's, it's part of the romance fixture. And I didn't know. You know, but it's like I'm helping them in the same way they're helping me. And that's why I find it very important. Mm, that's smart. I like that. So what should we leave people with? We're coming to the end of our time. Mm -hmm. Is there anything you'd like to add here that we could have folks remember when they think back to this podcast? Yeah. So I find that a lot of people um, that read my stuff also want to write my stuff. You know, they, they want to be writers. And, and I would say to any aspiring first time author, because I used to be you and I was just, just you just a few short years ago, three things that I would offer to them. First is always be open to constructive criticism. No matter what you think, um, some people are gonna have better ideas than you, or they're gonna point something out and you're gonna say, well, you know what, maybe I should have done it that way. So even though it might sting, that one moment of sting, it's like getting a shot, it's gonna heal you, it's gonna do something better for you. So. Suck it up, grow a thick skin, listen to constructive criticism. Secondly, write every day, uh, make it muscle memory. And what I mean by that is you don't have to write a chapter a day, a story a day. It could be outlining your future project, right? Like go and, you know, and, and, and tweak something and make that work, you know? And I think that it's that consistency uh, that allows you to get up every morning and write something new. And without that, you feel like the days I don't write, I feel like I'm missing it. Like I, I didn't, like I missed going to the gym. Right. Like I, there's something there that like, ah, you know, like I'm, I did something wrong today, you know. And then, you know, lastly, um, you know, I would say use every tool. And you mentioned this a little earlier in your questioning. Use every tool that you can at your disposal to promote your work. So if you're the kind of person that just looks at it as art and you care that you don't care that only 40 people read it, then that's fine. If not, look at it and really bear down into it. Lean into social media because it's free lean into anything that you can get that's free that's going to expand your network provide you with opportunities and i look at it as you know having my own business right i am i am an entrepreneur of my product right and here's my product go and buy it and consume it and so 
those are the three things I would leave any future aspiring author uh, to to uh, as a piece of advice. Excellent advice. Thank you. JV, thanks so much for being on the show today. This was a lot of fun. It was my pleasure, sir. This 45 minutes flew by, so Boom. Yeah, I really, really appreciate <laughs> it. That's it for today's episode of the Future X Podcast. Listen to all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Google, or anywhere fine podcasts appear in your feed. For more info about Future X, visit futurex.studio.